You guys ready to uh, jump into uh, scripture today? Kind of. That was super lukewarm, but it's all cool. I'm just kidding. That was supposed to be a joke, but how about we all stand? We're going to jump into scripture, whether you like it or not. Hopefully, you all like it. Uh, and open up in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4. Um, give you a quick little background that we've been in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And in short, it's a story or it's a, it's a letter written by a guy named Paul the Apostle to a community of people that are following Jesus, living in a very well-known, predominant city. Yeah, if you don't have Bibles, uh, you need one, you like one, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get your Bible. Um, and the whole thrust and aim of the letter is Paul is addressing them, writing to them, because what happened as followers of Jesus, uh, they were becoming under threat of becoming more influenced by the culture at large around them than by Jesus. And this is why it's so relevant to us, because it's the exact same danger that you and I face as well. We live in an amazing city. We love slow. We love the Central Coast. We have an incredible life here. But as with any other culture, we all have that suspected danger that we can become more shaped by the cultural values around us than by Jesus, who loves us and who gave himself for us. So this is kind of the introduction a little bit to that. So I want to read what we'll be looking at here this morning. So I'm going to actually pick up in verse... Uh, past last two verses of chapter 3, and then we will kind of dovetail and go back into Genesis, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Um, in the original writing, uh, what we know is that the Bible was not written with chapter and verse and whatnot, so we want to kind of at least wrap our minds around what was ended with last week. So here we go. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at about verse 21. Let no one boast in man. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ's is God's. Verse 1 of chapter 4, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you, by any human court, in fact. He says, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything even in myself, but I am not thereby acquitted by that. He says, it is the Lord who judges me, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. God, we ask you right now that you would speak to us, that your word would go down deep and bring transformation and bring light into those areas where there's darkness and bring understanding where there's areas of confusion and bring humbling where there are areas of arrogance and pride and bring just the comfort that we need especially in those areas where there's nothing but anxiety. So God, have your way with us in this moment. We ask these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Would you guys all grab a seat, and uh, we will begin to jump in and take a look at this. Um, if I had not already done so, let me introduce myself. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here. And so um, I'm part of, as Pastor Gunther had mentioned, a part of a community of other pastors and leaders here in this church um, and then as we're gone, we're really excited because we have some really good, solid Bible teachers that will be here teaching you guys scripture. So next week, Pastor Gunther will be teaching. The following week after that, I have a really good friend of mine, which I highly, highly recommend. His uh, name is Mike Hensler. Um, I've known Mike for a really long time, and his daughter actually uh, is one of our worship leaders here. And I've known Mike for a very, very long time, and I've just he's one of these guys that from a distance... I've, um, you know, secretly, like, said I want to I be Mike when I grow up, and so I, I cannot be more excited than to share him with you guys, and he'll be teaching God's Word with you guys as well two weeks after uh, today. And so, anyways, I want to jump right in and begin to take a look at what Paul is writing here. Before we do, I want to kind of say a couple words based upon the passage that we looked at last week that was covered, but I want to just kind of by way of moving into this, because that's all part of one similar train of thought. Now, again, like I said earlier, the Bible is not written with chapter divisions and verse breaks and so on and so forth, and that's kind of a little bit of a, a deficit for us oftentimes when we read our Bibles, because we stop at those chapter breaks, and sometimes there's a thought that needs to be carried on, and this is one of those moments where 
Paul is actually writing, and he carries on this train of thought that actually began in chapter 3. And here's what Paul says. I just want you to think about and wrap your mind around what he's considering, what he's suggesting. Now, again, he says, let no one boast in men. Goes stands to reason. Obviously, why is he saying this? Because what was happening in the church there in Corinth was sort of this factioning. Um, what we would describe in today's modern terminology is they were creating celebrity status pastors, leaders that were like, you know, this is the old school dude, and, you know, it's Peter. He's kind of been around from the beginning, and then there's Apollos. He's a dude with a really cool haircut and ripped jeans, and he's super hip and, like, good looking. And then there's Paul. He's like this little Jew. Nobody really likes him that much, uh, but he's, like, straight up, teaches a good word. And so there was this faction. So what you have is these people that were like, I'm really into Paul. Others are like, I'm really into Paulus because he's cool and hip and Paul's lame. And what you had is this constant ongoing uh, um, distraction as well as divisiveness that was happening in the early church. And Paul is basically writing, number one, to address that, to say, I mean, there's a litany of stuff that Paul's going to address, but this is one of the very first things that he wants to identify. And what does Paul say about these guys. So, number one, what you do not get from Paul is Paul is not going to be like throwing Apollos under the bus. He's not throwing Peter under the bus. What he is saying is that, again, don't, don't boast in men because that's the root of the problem here. The root of the problem is that you are elevating certain people above other people. You're looking at this guy and you're like, this guy's amazing and everyone else is lame. You are becoming tribalistic. And when you become overtly tribalistic, at some point you become cannibalistic. You begin to devour and divide the very body that Jesus sought to bring together. And so Paul's addressing this. He says, don't, don't boast in men. That's the root of the problem. Then he goes on to say, for all things are yours. I just want you to pause and think about this. How extensive is all things? Well, it's, it's big. Just in case you don't understand how extensive all things, and that's air quotes, right? How extensive all things is. Paul goes on to elaborate by way of using a rhetorical uh, skill or language. Now, for example, um, in the Bible, you, if you read in the Old Testament, you, sometimes you'll come across a passage that might say, from Dan to Beersheba. And you're like, what, what does from Dan to Beersheba mean? That is a literary device that basically says, all throughout the entire land of Israel, every square inch of Israel, which I'm going to be at in about four days, which is pretty exciting, um, all throughout the land of Israel is, is whatever that this applies to. Um, we would say something like from East Coast to West Coast. How much of America does that include? Well, well, everything. Well, how come we don't say throughout all America? Because from East Coast to West Coast is a literary device that basically says the same thing in different language. This is exactly what Paul is suggesting. When he says all things, he wants to go on using literary device to basically point out how extensive it is that God is basically saying, I'm giving you all things. He goes on to say, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, the world, life, death, present, future. Again, just in case you missed it, all are yours. And then he goes on to add this really important aspect. He says, for you are Christ. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. Now, I want to go to the next slide. We'll talk a little bit about a myth. We'll play a game of myth and truth, right? So the myth that I think oftentimes many of us um, conceive when we think about God, and this is one of those important things that we have to, to some degree, um, at least identify, and then we, once we identify, we can reorient our theological framework as to who God is. One of the myths that we oftentimes, I think, believe is that God is extremely restrictive. So depending upon what type of religious background you came from uh, will be a determining factor as to how restricted you think God is. Right? So if you were from an extremely you know, literalistic, fundamentalistic Christian cult that you know, churned your own goat butter, and you lived in a certain frame of reference, there's a lot on that list of restrictions. Right? If you were from a different aspect, you know, there's, again, the, the list is going to vary depending upon what type of background you came from. But at the end of the day, what it ends up creating for us is this construct that God is straight up a very, very restrictive God. He's a God that's against sex. He's a God that's against drinking wine. He's a God that's against having fun. He's a God that's against entertainment. He's a God that's against, you know, abundance. He's a God, you know, however you think about this God. And what I suggest to you, that thinking is oftentimes the very source of your life being lived out in a way that's not consistent with the gospel. So 
which then leads to kind of this truth. Um, the reality is, is that God is extremely generous. Now, caveat needs to be made on this because Paul, for example, he'll say things in the New Testament like, hey, all things are lawful to me. So the question, Paul, how many things are lawful to you? Can I do anything, right? Can I kill someone? Well, yeah, of course you can, but that's really bad because it's not only a violation of the commands of God, but it's also a violation of, you know, moral code, and it will also land you in prison. So yes, go ahead and do that, but you will pay by way of the law of the land, and you will then be restricted yourself. In other words, you will have imposed upon you guilt, shame, you know, punishment, all these things will come upon you. But here's, that's a super extreme example, of course. But it, it, what, about, what about sex? Is sex lawful? Of course. Can I have it anytime, anywhere I want? Well, look, at the end of the day, you can live according to a construct that is of your own making, and you will end up paying certain prices as a result of that. Or you can live in a way that is consistent with how God intends for that. So here's another one, drinking. What about drinking? You know, again, depending upon what type of background or construct, Christian construct you've come from, some will say, no, absolutely no drinking whatsoever. Now, for some Christians um, who have struggled with alcoholism, they begin to realize, no, alcohol is, you know, like what Paul says, it's, it's all legal, all lawful for me, but some, for some, it's not profitable. In other words, of course, you can have a glass of wine, but for some, it might not be profitable for you. It might not be actually helpful in your progress in walking with Jesus, in making wise decisions, in living in a way that's consistent with the heart of God. In other words, you, have a, you might have a problem with it. And again, some are kind of more wired towards addictive behaviors than others. But the point of the matter is, is that this is the idea that I think we need to first of all understand. Now, some would say and argue, well, wait a minute, Brian, that if you are creating this concept that God is extremely generous and that nothing is off limits, all things are lawful, that could end up leading people to extreme liberty abuse. And I would have to concur. You're totally right. Straight up right. In fact, I would even piggyback upon the teachings of other men that I have greater respect for than in my ability to do so. Guys like Tim Keller and even John MacArthur have even stated things along similar lines like this. That if the gospel that you preach does not potentially lead people to potentially view extreme liberty, then it's not the real gospel. So here's what ends up happening in many Christian and religious churches and constructs. They say, well, that's dangerous. People will then take advantage of it and get themselves entangled in sin. So we need to set up laws and restrictions and rules to keep them in control. Right? And what ends up happening is it begins to add to what God has intended, and it creates a restrictive construct that is actually not gospel. That's not the gospel anymore. The gospel is that God loves us in spite of who we are, gave himself for us, and loves this world, and has not abandoned this world, and is inviting us to partner with him to love this world the way that he loves this world, which means to not allow our hearts to go into areas that get embroiled once again with old forms of addictions that lead us to brokenness. In other words, God is birthing new creation into this earth, and anything that is still in alignment with death, he's inviting us to lay aside because it's not part of his new creation. So in other words, the point that I would make is this, is that the truth is that God is extremely generous, yet he knows the proclivity of our hearts is to drift towards an unhealthy dependency. We would call that addiction or in some cases idolatry, which we'll get to in a second. Then a mindset of scarcity, which means that, oh my gosh, I don't know, I'm going to have enough tomorrow, so I've got to protect this and guard this and secure this. And I can't be generous with other people because what if there's not enough tomorrow? Or what if this person that I'm giving myself over to, this great preacher, like they're so, so good, uh, you know, I, I, I need to somehow protect their life and livelihood and all that, that I have to kind of hate and create you know, other people that are not part of that tribe as the enemy. And that leads to a mindset of scarcity, meaning there's not enough to go around. i got to protect what I have. And then finally, this idea of fierce loyalty, uh, uh, protective defensiveness of those people, places, and or things. In other words, what Paul describes, these are gifts from God to you to be enjoyed. So what happens if we begin to not see them as gifts, but as 
things that we give ourselves over to. So the difference is that Paul's trying to identify is that you got you to follow with me in terms of the, the, the logic and reasoning here. What Paul is saying is that God has given you, if you're a follower of Jesus, gifts. And the context immediately here is the gift of unique, different, differing teachers in the church. Apollos, Peter, Paul. All of these are very diverse, very different. Paul is nothing like Apollos. Apollos is nothing like Peter. But what he's saying is that all of these are a gift from God to you so that you can grow in your faith. Well, what was happening is that these people were more influenced by the cultural context of what we described several weeks ago as the sophists within Corinth. Um, the, there was a group of uh, teachers that went around. They, were, they weren't Christian people. They were called sophists, and they communicated wisdom. Uh, again, I identified them kind of like um, part life coach, part, you know, guru, part super smart human being, you know, good-looking person that travels. You pay them a certain amount of money. They deposit extreme wisdom into your mind and how you think and all that. And what ends up happening was people were kind of forging these identities around the particular sophists that they follow. And what was happening in the church is the exact same mindset. Well, we belong to Paulus, which means we hate Paul and Peter. Or there's those that are like, well, we're the traditions. We're all about Peter, and we totally hate Paulus because he's got a horrible haircut. And we don't like Paul because he's, you know, whatever. What Paul's saying is that, no, all of these are a gift from God to you. And the fact that you are creating divisions around certain personalities and celebrity-type characters just simply is more of a reflection upon your inability to understand God's generosity to give. So how does this play out in the modern church? I'll tell you how it plays out. It plays out when we become tribalistic. Now, is there, there's nothing wrong with having desire to like, or, you know, having preferences for one pastor or preacher over another. And again, you know, St. Louis has got some incredible churches and there's certain preferential tastes that we have over one style of service and one particular preacher and how he handles the text over others. You know, I've had people come to me, they're like, I really like your forthrightness and directness. And I've had other people like, I really hate your forthrightness and directness. And it's like, okay, that's cool. Like, again, uh, um, but the point of the matter is, is uh, when you create a context that basically says, I'm loyal to that guy, and I'm loyal to that tribe, and I'm loyal to that church, and I'm loyal to that thing, and which means anyone that's not part of that tribe or that church is my enemy, and i got to somehow find everything that's wrong with them. Oh, they don't teach the Bible the way that we teach the Bible. Or they don't go verse by verse through the Bible the way that we go verse by verse through the Bible. Or they don't believe in this particular aspect. Now, again, now I want to create a context that in some cases... It does require us to have discernment to determine um, those that are veering from the central message of Jesus. If it is veering from the central message of Jesus, then that's problematic. That's something we have to correct and bring back to Jesus. But I'm talking about people in the modern church that love Jesus, that promote the message of Jesus, promote the way of Jesus, and live according to a character that looks like Jesus. But they're from different tribes, different stripes. There's nothing wrong with tribes. I want to be clear about this. But there is something very wrong with tribalism. And so I, I mean, tribes, is a, I would even say, is, is a development that God himself created, right? Even within Israel, Israel was divided into tribes. But when the tribes became tribalistic, that led to cannibalism, and they fought each other, and that happened from time to time throughout their history. So I'll give you an example of how this played out, even in my own Christian experience. Now, as I was a very young Christian and began to read a lot and study a lot, I remember uh, some of the very first books I began to read was, one, in fact, the very first Christian book I've ever read was by a guy named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you know anything about Calvinism or Reformed theology, you know that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was kind of a very, very well-known, recognized guy within that camp, that camp. And if you don't know anything about what Reformed theology is or uh, Calvinism, that's totally fine. You can look it up and just check it out. But the point that I would make is this, is that it's a good example of different tribes and sects that oftentimes build out within Christian circles. Uh, other ones are like charismatic. So you have some people that are into charismatic giftings, people that speak in tongues, people that believe in visions or dreams, others that maybe don't necessarily believe in that. They're a little bit um, gun shy as a result of that type of stuff. So what ends up happening, you have these churches that are like, well, our church believes in visions and dreams. It sounds like you guys don't, so you must be going to hell. Or you have others that are like, you know, we believe in Calvinism and Reformed theology, and this is what we hold to as dear, 
And anybody that does not believe within the same context or same framework as we do, we basically just consign to eternal punishment because that's basically what, where they're from. They don't see the Bible the way that we do it. Or there's others even within my own background was one that had a very, very strong emphasis upon certain types, uh, certain type of end times interpretation that basically I would be part of pastor's groups and they would be talking really negatively about other pastors that didn't believe that same exact same type of mindset and questioning whether or not they really even knew Jesus, questioning whether or not they're actually really part of the same team. And the reality is they're part of the same team. But what happens when you become overly loyal to a tribe? First Corinthians, that's what happens. You become hypercritical of anybody that's not on your team. You have to become like that way. Why? Because it develops an unhealthy dependency, like I need my reform fix. Okay, cool. Um, again, I don't have anything against reform. I, I, I love reform background. I've read a lot. And one of the things I've also realized, like, uh, at the same time, even within a reform camp, and again, if you're not familiar with that, just check it out. Even within that t same type of camp, what you, what you have are those that can't even look at a guy like N.T. Wright. Again, if you don't know who N.T. Wright is, that's fine. You can check it out. But that would look at him and be like, oh, my gosh, he's so wrong and off base. But the problem is because there is a tribalistic flavor that has pervaded the whole experience. And it's caused people to look at others that are outside of the tribe with deep suspicion. And I would suggest to you that's exactly, exactly what Paul is saying. It's not healthy. It's not healthy for you. It's not, it's not the way that God invites us to walk. God invites us to look at everything that he has provided as an abundant, generous God who's given us all things. Whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or heaven or earth or life or death or all these things that Paul says. That's a different approach than saying, I only associate with one little segment and the rest I'm deeply suspicious of and skeptical of and consigned to some form of torment. And what I'm suggesting to you is a different way of approaching this. And this is what Paul is now going to lead back into the passage that we are specifically wanting to begin to take a look at. So take a look at this as we move on into this. And Paul says in verse 1, this is how one should regard us. So what Paul's going to do now is going to basically realign our theological chops to think about how should we think about leaders in the church. Now, what he's going to do, he's going to start with leaders in the church, but then he's going to move on into more of a generalized way of thinking about because on the one hand, he is definitely going to be addressing how should followers of Jesus think about leaders in the church that should be helpful to their growth and understanding of the gospel. Um, again, there's multiple flavors of how churches are run and carried out and services, and some they resonate with others, some they don't resonate with others, and so on and so forth. That's fine, but what happens is when we become tribalistic to the point where uh, we become so protective of our little deal to the point that we begin to castigate and consign others to eternal torment because they don't have, you know, music the way that we have music or don't have exact same even Bible translation. I mean, I'll never forget the experience I had one time years ago. I was in the deep south, and I saw this church, and I kid you not, the sign was literally the size of this entire thing. And it said, very, very big, bold letters, um, you know, you, what you put on the sign is what you want to be read, and the sign said something to the effect of, we are, uh, I don't know, James, King James 1611 version only church. So what, what they want you to understand is that that church only read scripture from that particular translation version of Bible, which, again was a very profound way of just simply saying anyone else that does not fit that framework is probably messed up and wrong. We pray for you, bro. We pray for you. Uh, maybe one of these days you'll meet Jesus. You know, it's like, again, that arrogance is exactly what Paul's saying. You're, you're boasting a man. It's not healthy. It's not healthy for your soul. It's not healthy for the cultivation of community and family, which is what Paul says earlier in chapter 3, is that brothers, your brothers, your sisters, your siblings, spiritual siblingship of God's family. So what I want to do right now is I want to begin to jump in and take a look at what Paul says. So there's three things we'll take a look at, and we'll wrap this up with some final thoughts. So Paul says, number one, he says, here's how you're to regard us. Number one, as servants of Christ, as servants of Christ. Now, again, Paul's exclusively at this point talking about religious leaders, or leaders, I should say, that are part of the church. And I sometimes I'll use the word religious, but religious, I mean people that are leading the church. So the question is, how should you think about leaders in the church? 
as celebrities? No, not at all. Again, we, we live in America. We live in the, the, the culture of celebrityism, and where we celebrate people's accolades and how many books they've written, how many people come to the church, how many they baptize. And, you know, I, I've, I'm in crazy contact with so many different pastors of all stripes, all ages, all tribes, and so on and so forth, and I, and I love them. Um, but one of the things I've learned over the many years I've been doing ministry over half of my life is that pastors oftentimes get sucked into this black hole of, like, it's about performance. It's about all these things. It's, and it becomes, ultimately, uh, an exercise in promoting themselves, self-promotion, and not a lot of Jesus promotion. And again, sometimes it's subtle, and it comes across as, like, so, sort of self you know, deprecating, like, well, I love Jesus. But in reality, it's about, you know, how many people are looking at my social media and how many people are, like, uh, commenting upon whatever it is about me. But at the end of the day is that we, we live in a very highly celebrity-saturated culture and community. And what Paul is saying is that really, don't look at me as a celebrity. Don't look at me as a sophist. Don't look at me as a life coach. Don't look at me as somebody that is unique or higher or of more privilege or greater, you know, value than any of you. Because in reality, he says, we're just servants of Christ. So this is where it gets really interesting, because the word servant that he uses there, there's multiple times in the New Testament where Paul uses the word that gets translated in English as servant. So you have like deacon, word diakinos, de, uh, deacon. Uh, other words that oftentimes get used to describe this particular word. The word that Paul uses here is the only place in the entire New Testament that, that this word actually gets used. Now, we know about what this word means, because it also shows up in certain ancient Greek uh, writings. Uh, it's a hooper, the word hooper uh, eret. I'm not even gonna try because I'm gonna sound stupid. But there you go. You can read it up there. Um, I'll, I'll just I'll leave you under the illusion that I'm really smart. I know what I'm talking about, but I really don't. Um, but here's I do know what the word means, and the word basically means under road. Now, for example, um, if you ever saw the movie Ben Hur, one of those movies in the ancient Greco-Roman world where you had a, a ship and maybe it might be a cargo ship, and underneath the deck, right, but below where you don't see anybody, um, you would have you know. Dozens, if not maybe a hundred or so people. They were rowers. They would sit right next to each other, and they would basically take a hold of the thing. You know, it's, I don't know what you call it because I'm, I'm not into that stuff. But you get the idea. The oar. There you go. The oar. That's like like highly technical term. Oar. There. Thank you. Thank you. I would not have figured that out. But oar, and they would row, especially when there's no wind. Um, so you'd imagine this is highly hands-on grunt work. This is the word that Paul uses to say, Here, here's here's what I am. If you're looking for terminology to describe and define who I am and what I do, this is it. I'm, I'm one of those people under the deck that my job is to just, you know, move the boat forward. Think about that. That's, that's profound, what Paul is saying here. Now, who is Paul? Paul's a really important guy in the church. Yes or no? That's pretty important. He wrote a lot of the New Testament, right? He's a pretty significant guy. Is, is this Paul just kind of being fake? No, I, I think Paul really, truly felt this. I think Paul really recognized Here's, here's who I am. Yes, God radically saved me. Yes, God radically did a work in my life. But at the end of the day, I am the guy as part of a community of other people that are simply doing the underrowing. It's grunt work. And it's thankless. It doesn't really pay off very often. And if, it, if anything, many times it just brings a host of criticism uh, for our lives and what we're doing, what we're not doing, so on and so forth. And here's what Paul says. First of all, who we are. Number one, servants of Christ. Uh, secondly, he goes on to say that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. This is uh, verse one, a uh, lot of heart. This is uh, little section B. Uh, the word that he uses here, next slide, is he goes on to describe uh, okonomos is the word that he uses here. It's a very common uh, phrase throughout the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world. And this particular word can be translated as stewards in some of your Bibles. But in reality, think of it as this way. It's a housekeeper or overseer. It's a very common word that would have been used within that. Um, most oftentimes describing a slave. And here's what the rest of it just goes on to say. That they were charged with providing the establishment of a large estate with food and all things needful. It's helpful to understand a little bit of a backstory as to why this you know, role was even in play in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Here's why. So let's say, for example, you're a really, really rich you know, girl or dude, and you, you, got a, you got a lot of servants. You got a lot of property. You got 100 acres just outside of Corinth. You're really rich. You own, you know, let's say, for example, olive groves and, and, you know, vineyards. And so you're making the best wine, and you got this incredible business that's growing. It's burgeoning. You got all these people that are working for you, some of which are kind of indentured servants. So, you know, they owe you money, but because they don't have money to owe you, they're basically on your payroll, though they're not getting paid. They're just, they're paying 
you basically off for the next five years by doing work. Let's say, for example, you're like, I need to go to Rome to go figure out some business stuff, and I'm going to be gone for a long time. So again, back in the ancient world, if you were to travel from you know, Corinth to Rome, um, there was no like, easy flight, right? It was very challenging and difficult to get there. You couldn't get there in like two hours. It would take you sometimes days to finally get there. And once you did get there, it would take a while to kind of you know, gather together all the people that you needed to because imagine a world that was like pre-cell phone. Like how in the world do you get in contact with all these people? Um, you just show up at the doorstep. Like, hey, what's up? You know, I'm here for a business meeting. Can you gather like the 18 other people that we need to get together? How are we going to do that? We'll just show up. On, and that's, that takes you months and months and months. In some cases, people that were wealthy masters um, they would be gone uh, for you know weeks, days, or in some cases even years. And so, for you to be gone that long, you need somebody who's in charge of your household. So that person's going to be in charge of your household. They're going to be in charge of the other indentured servants. They're going to be the one that takes care of you know I don't know trimming you know the the bushes or you know taking care of your household or like making sure your kids get the schooling that they need and education, whatever it is. I mean, it was is extensive, especially if you had a lot of money you would be able to hire a lot of people to do a lot of stuff. So uh, this particular role is someone of incredible importance. However, they might still be a slave, a servant. And so this is the word that Paul uses here. He was charged with this really important role. And this is what Paul says. This is, this is my job before you guys. And my job was I don't own the household. I don't own the church. It doesn't belong to me. You're not my people. That's an important thing to just pause and think about that. Like, even, like, Calvary Slow, like, yes, my wife and I moved here 26-some-odd years ago, and we planted a church in our living room that grew, that continues to just grow and do great things and reach the world and do amazing. But at the end of the day, you, you don't belong to me. You're not my people. Like, I love you. We're family. You're brothers and sisters. We're part of that same kinship, family-ship, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, you, 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 don't, you don't owe anything necessarily to me, and uh, we're, we're family, like, um, yeah, I might have a role here that opens up scripture weekly and um, preaches and teaches the Bible and, you know, counsels and whatever, whatever it is that I do. But at the end of the day, we're, we're all part of the same family. And really, above me on all this, uh, Jesus is the chief shepherd. Like, he's the master in charge of, of everything here. Like, that, but that, that does mean that there is a role for leaders in the church, and those leaders' job is to not come together and figure out how can we, you know, build ourselves this incredible kingdom like, no, that's wrong question. Like, wrong question. The question is, what does Jesus want us to do to be faithful to this, his flock? That's the question that we ask. You know, we have elders in our church. We meet weekly to pray, to seek God. That's the general question that constantly just keeps going back to, reframing our lives around that weekly. A monthly, we gather together, we talk, like, bigger, bigger picture stuff. Like, what are some of the things that we need to, like, take care of? And how can we help? And what are the resources that are needed for those areas? But at the end of the day, Jesus is the master of this household. And he has oikonomos that are in charge of various aspects, elements of the daily, day-to-day -day elements of all of this. So, uh, next slide. And... I want to just point out a passage that gets used within the New Testament. This is where it kind of begins to dither a little bit into um, extending beyond just simple, simple leaders in the church, now going into everyone. So if you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, this, this straight up applies to you. So you were not a church leader, um, that, that's fine. But then Paul now begins to bring you in, or I should say Peter begins to bring you into this larger concept of what it means to be a steward over the household of God. So he goes on to say, each one has received a gift. Use it, as, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So there's the phrase. Uh, who's Peter writing to? He's always writing to a, a community of people living for Jesus, which would be kind of like this, a community of people that claim to follow Jesus. And then he says, look, God has given each one of you guys gifts. So let me just pause and you know, invite you to reflect upon that. What are the gifts that God's given you? What other things? Now, again, some of your gifts might not be necessarily situated for, like, you know, preaching, teaching. That's fine. That's, that's not all. You know, I, I grew up in a church that had a high, high emphasis upon the importance of, like, teaching and preaching the Bible. And I, I, think, I think there's deserved information that should be uh, pointed at. But what it oftentimes can do is it causes other people that don't necessarily have that gift. Like, look, the gift of baking pies, that's a real gift. I really do. I think it is. I mean, baking, it's hospitality. People that love to show hospitality, that's a really important one. In fact, I love that one. If anyone wants to, like, bake me pies, you know, I would be extremely blessed. But the point that, Matt, that I would make is, is that God has given each one of us gifts. Do you, do you know what those gifts are? 
Um, and again, let me just a little word on, um, you know, there's like, uh, you know, type in gift study. And some of those can be helpful. Um, they're not super extensive. I think the best way to really begin to discover and understand what your gifts are is invite other people in that process. Find other people that love Jesus, that are committed to God, that have a, have a mature faith, and ask them, like, hey, um, here's what I think maybe some of my areas of gifting are. Does this kind of resonate with you? Do you, do you see any of this in my life? Um, and I would even suggest um, make this a point of priority. Like, like, make it a priority because part of your development as a follower of Jesus will be dependent upon you using your gifts in the context of serving God's people. I mean, that's exactly what Peter says, um, that as we grow, as followers of Jesus. So some of us are like, man, I'm really trying hard to follow Jesus. And I only, you know, it's like one of the questions I would often have to ask people, how often are you involved in fellowship and going to church and involved in a small group? I go once every like six weeks. Fact of the matter is, without trying to make you, sound, make you feel bad, you cannot grow that way. You really, honestly, truly cannot grow that way any more than if your aim is like, I want to drop 25 pounds and I want to gain muscle mass. And I ask you how often to go to the gym. They're like, I go once every six weeks. Like, what do you do for this? You know, that one six weeks that you show up? I work out for half an hour, 15 minutes on the treadmill, and the rest 15 minutes I drink water and I do a couple of like free weights and I'm out. Like, dude, straight up, you will not lose weight. You will not gain muscle mass. Like, your entire process is geared towards failure, not good failure, not like, like muscle failure that builds muscle mass, but failure, like you will not accomplish those goals. The point of the matter is true with following Jesus, that if we truly want to follow Jesus, become like Jesus, to live like the one whom we love, who loves us, who gave himself for us, at some point we have to look at the system or the process of our discipleship and ask, how is it playing out? How consistent are we playing out? Um, do, do we have a fear of commitment? Again, that's a big issue on Central Coast. If you're like trying to figure out what are the major vices of San Luis Obispo life, that's one of them. We are utterly afraid of commitment. That's why you can be dating someone for like eight years and be like, I still don't have a ring on my finger. Like, what, what's up with that? I'll tell you what's up with that. It's just an imbibing of the culture. Like, that, that's the problem. Is that we're utterly afraid of commitment. Because we're thinking, well, there might be like 18 other things that might be better than this. And so we live within a perennial state of limbo, hoping for something better to come. And it never really comes, and we never really grow, and we never really experience the depth of God's love and grace. We're constantly asking these big questions like, why does God feel so far from me? Why do I keep stumbling, going back and forth in the same cycles of sin and brokenness and rebellion and cynicism and hardness of heart? Why? Well, again, it's the process. Your process, your, your routines aren't lending themselves towards robust uh, health and, and growth. And so what Peter goes on to say, um, know what your gifts are and use them as good stewards it's not about you. It's about God. It's about God giving you something. It's about God bringing you into something. Do you, do you know that? The faith, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't get to make it up. It's part of the problem of Christianity, honestly, like in the past 50 years, is that Christianity in the past 50 years, in America especially, has been like, you know what, we're so tired of all the traditional stuff, and, you know, we, we need to recreate a faith for our modern days. No, we actually don't. We don't. What we need to do is discover what has been given to us and that faithful people for centuries have lived out and that's, and be faithful to that. We don't need to innovate the faith. We don't need to somehow create something that's palatable. Look, at the end of the day, I don't care how you slice it or dice it or you know, zest it up, the gospel at the very core will still be a point of confusion and ridiculousness to so many people. No matter how cool it, you make it, at some point we just have to step back and say what I really want is not to be authentic or somehow recreate something that looks really cool, is I want to be faithful to what has been given to me that I've inherited. And it's what Peter is going to basically say. Can, can we go back to that uh, passage real quick? I'm going to wrap this up on there. And he goes on to say, whoever speaks as one who speaks, who serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion uh, forever and ever. Amen. His whole point is that, look, at the end of the day, this is about making much of Jesus. 
We want to be a church that is so faithful to making much of Jesus. It's not a, we don't want to be a community that's so much about how can we somehow help felt needs. So felt needs are part of what it means to be faithful to Jesus. But if we focus first on felt needs, it's possible for us to be unfaithful to Jesus. But I'm confident if we are faithful to Jesus, felt needs will be part of that. Jesus oftentimes walked into people's lives who had felt needs. Felt needs are like those deep, anguishing moments in our lives where like, you know, you're going through a divorce or you're going through a sickness or you've just been diagnosed with something gnarly and terminal. It's those needs that we feel the ache and the pain in that moment. Well, Jesus actually cares about those things. And because we do too, we want to help you. Man, I'll just throw this out, man. If you, if you need paying your rent or your bills, dude, let us know. We want to help you. Like we don't always have opportunities to like know about those things, but we want to we want to know we want to help you. God cares about you, and and so do we. Like those are those are ways in which we can begin to even think about those where those areas. That's part of the gifting of using the gifts that God's given us. Lastly, I'm going to move on to the very last little section here. Is we talk about Paul saying number one, he says we are servants of Christ. Number two, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. The word or the phrase mysteries of God is just another euphemism that Paul uses to describe the gospel, the good news that was once hidden, now it's revealed, uh, once didn't make a whole lot of sense, it was obscure, now there's some degree of clarity that God actually loves human beings, even though they're rebellious and broken and messed up, and they've soiled and ruined and vandalized this good earth and creation, that God loves this earth so much, the planet, that you know this world, this creation so much, that rather than abandoning it, he comes into it. And he allows himself to be soiled by those very ones made in his image who abused it. <laughs> this is how much the love of God is being unfolded to us. And Paul says, we are stewards of this mystery of God, which now you are a recipient of. And then finally he says that we want to be faithful to God. Listen how Paul says this in verse 2, and I'll read on to the very end. He says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found Faithful. So, uh, what should a steward do? Paul says they're to be faithful. And he goes on to say, as he plays this out in verse 3, he says, uh, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And then I'll pause and just think about this. What Paul is saying is that, look, I, I realize you guys are judging me. And the word that he uses there for judge is the word criticize or to render a verdict because that's what judgment is. Now, let me say a real quick word about this, that um, we are called by God to render good, honest judgment, right? Uh, We would call that discernment. It's it's important. We, We need judgment, and judgment calls as part of being human. But what ends up happening for us as human beings, we go way beyond that and become critical people. We become very overly uh, judgment-laden, where we are critical of anything and everything that we just don't like or is foreign to us or is different than our little tribe or little thing. Or, again, what, what was happening in Paul's day is that people that were deeply, fiercely loyal to Apollos, they're like, we don't like Paul. This is one of the reasons why Paul keeps um, saying the word Apollos. He's, he's literally doing Holy Spirit name-dropping, <laughs> right? He's just like, Apollos, he's my, he's my pal. You guys are trying to, like, create distinction between Apollos and me. Paul is my friend. That's the whole point. Um, and the point that I think is important to identify with regard to this is that Paul's saying, at the end of the day, I want to be faithful because that's what stewards are to be. Now, here's where the rub comes. He says, faithful to God. Well, the question is, what else is there, right? What else is there that we can be faithful to? The word faithful can also be translated loyal, loyal. So here's a couple of things to think about. Number one is, in order to really understand this, we have to understand the metaphor of servant-master um, in the New Testament language. So, for example, in our modern language, the way we typically would think of servant-master is something super distorted, um, or we think of it in terms of oppressor and the oppressed, right? That's how our culture tends to think about master-servant. So in other words, any construct that says, you know, he's the master, we immediately, like, bristle against that. And that's, that's our culture, by the way, influencing that. Uh, the Bible language is to describe a master, not as a bad, oppressive master, but as a good master that actually relieves oppression, that actually takes anxiety from us and restores 
our sense of you know, insanity with peace and shalom. Why? Because he's a powerfully good master. And he invites us to take his yoke upon ourselves, which means to be a servant. Does that make sense? So, number one, we have to, like, think differently about the construct of servant-master. And then the second thing we need to understand is that humans are actually hardwired to be devoted to something. You and I are hardwired for this. Um, do you think marketers know this? Straight up. Of course they do. They know that we're hardwired. And how does it, the whole system work? Well, the system works based upon desires. They find out, what is it that you really want? It's not that, you know, you just, you just uh, uh, Edward Bernard... Bernays, I think his name, um, he was uh, Freud's nephew, I believe. Um, he created this whole construct. He actually wrote a book called Propaganda. It was actually used for, for Nazi uh, Germany. And, and then after the war, um, really, really rich people in America that were trying to you know, create businesses here in America, um, they were like, hey, we need Edward Bernays to help us to kind of construct uh, a desire factory that can help tap into the general population of American people to help them think that they need certain things. And when they think they need certain things, then they'll buy those certain things, and then people will get really rich. And guess what the first pilot test was? Did anybody guess? Anybody guess what that, the first pilot test for that was? Nope. Close. Cigarettes. Tobacco. Tobacco. And th here's, here's what they did. Uh, women, during the 50s and whatnot, 40s, 50s, were kind of viewed as sort of an oppressed people group. And so what Edward Bernays said is that, you know, maybe if we can put a cigarette in the hand of a woman who most men, you know, mostly was just dudes that would smoke, they, you know, driving their big Cadillac and just like, you know, cigarette smoking. And, but if we put a cigarette into the hand of a woman and get her smoking and take photographs of that and somehow promote that, it's an empowerment device. So cigarette is not just something you smoke, it's an empowerment device. And what they discovered is that women weren't just simply looking for a smoke, they were looking for empowerment. You guys following? So the point that I would make is this, is that we have these desires that we are hardwired to be devoted to something. Be devoted to something. Um, this raises the question that most of us, we tend to think like, I'm an independent thinker. You're not as independent as you think you, think you are. <laughs> like, we are influenced consistently, constantly, by all sorts of propaganda, ideas, media, concepts, friends, peer groups, pasts you know, family of origin, so on and so forth. We are way more influenced by multiple things than we can dare to even think about. And ultimately, what ends up happening is that we become emotionally affected by their approval and or disapproval. So what we typically do is we look for, especially people that embody certain characteristics that we really want. And we say, I really want to be acknowledged by that person. So we work really hard. You know, we, we, we construct a world that basically around us says, I'm going to work really hard because what I'm really working for is not just a pay raise but their approval. See that? You guys, all, you guys all okay? How are we all doing? Both of you are doing good. Good. All right. So uh, follow along. To have the approval, it goes on to say, to have the approval or, uh, of those that we value uh, ultimately bolsters our devotion. So in other words, when we find that I'm doing something that's bringing benefit or value to whoever it is that I, I really deeply want to be highly valued in their eyes, and they value me, now I feel even more devoted to them, to their ways, to their business. It's one of the reasons why people sometimes can work extremely exorbitant hours for, you know, maybe a product they don't really like, but they feel seen by the boss. Does that make sense? They feel not invisible. <laughs> they feel recognized. They feel approved of. And this, uh, trust me, this is all going to play back into it, and I'll wrap it up with some final thoughts. To have their disapproval ultimately leads to all kinds of pathological conditions. So in other words, if you fall out of favor, we see this in daddy wounds. If you're a young dude, you know, your dad leaves, or he's abusive with you physically, drinks too much, devoted to his own demons that he's fighting, and if he's abusive to you, um, you realize you don't have the ability to get the approval from dad. Now you have these daddy wounds that go really down deep in your life and it takes all sorts of variety. So, you know, it can oftentimes play out in later life in anger and aggression, one-upmanship. You know, it's the dude that's like in the fraternity is just like having sex with as many women as he can. Not because he wants sex. He wants power. Conquering another woman's body is a way of exerting power over another person. It's messed up. 
It's the world we live in now. And disapproval slash and or disapproval of others oftentimes depends upon our performance. And here's where it all kind of comes back in the story with Paul. Is that when we have our hopes anchored in the wrong source, it leads to all forms of actions and activities that are deeply destructive to our souls. And what we do is we get ourselves into this treadmill of working really, really hard, performing really, really hard, acting really, really hard to earn the approval of this other person, and we never really get it. And we feel this deep sense of worthlessness in our soul. And the word for that is enslavement. You are a slave to another person. Here's why. You're elevating that person higher than what they really should be. They've become your idol rather than them being your servant. And here's what Paul's saying, is that as this is going out in the church, there are many of you that are devoting yourself to Apollos, and therefore you hate me and you're judging me. And Paul basically says, look, guys, you judge me. It doesn't hold weight. Your verdict over me this doesn't mean that as human beings we feel no pain, right? That's, that's straight up being cynical, right? So if you go through life, you're like, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. That's straight up, number one, you're, A, you're a liar. You've got to repent of that. Number two, um, um, this is not how we're wired. We want the praise and the affection and the recognition and the affirmation of others. But Paul is saying here, look, even your condescending ideas and verdict over me, doesn't carry ultimate weight over my soul. And Paul even goes on to say, I, I don't even render the ultimate verdict over myself by my own standards. <laughs> you realize that some of us, um, some of our worst critics is not the person next to you or in your family line up above you. It's you. Like you're, you're your worst critic. And what you're living for is the verdict of hearing yourself say, I did a good job. I accomplished this. And I'm powerful. And I'm seen. And I'm no longer invisible. Do you realize that even that voice that we oftentimes live for, Paul says, look, I, my conscience is not soiled. That's what he says in, I don't think, like verse 3 or 4. He says, even my own conscience, I don't even judge myself. But even, even if I did judge myself, my conscience is clear. But then Paul goes on to say, I don't look to my conscience, and I don't even look to you guys for the verdict. His whole point is I look to God who renders the verdict. And this is where it gets insane. Paul says, but the verdict that God gives me is one of justified. Why? Because he worked really hard? No, nope, exact opposite. I'm going to read a quick quote from Tim Keller, and I'm going to wrap it up with this thought. It's kind of a paraphrase of what Tim Keller said. It says this. In the world, that we are in this world, we are trained to believe that our performance will ultimately lead to others' verdict. In other words, work really hard, and you're going to get the verdict from them that says, approved, you're awesome, you get the raise. You get to hang out and have dinner with me. Or I'm going to treat you to coffee or w do whatever, right? You get to, you know, ride tandem on their bike, right? And they're the richest human being in the world. You're like, whatever that is for you, you get that approval. But what happens if you work really hard and you get disapproved? Now you're in your darkest night. Because the very praise that you were longing for never came. And not only did it not come, it came in the form of disapproval. And he goes on to say in this little statement, because that's just kind of how our world works. He says, in the world, we're trained to believe that our performance leads to a verdict. But in Christianity, in the gospel, the verdict leads to our performance. The verdict of the only one that truly matters in the entire universe. His verdict over me says, justified, forgiven, loved, son, daughter, that actually leads to performance. Dallas Willard, I think, says something to this effect, that grace, grace, is totally opposed to earning, not opposed to effort. The more that we understand grace, the less we are wired to say, I've got to earn God's favor. I've got to work really hard. I've got to pray more. I've got to go to church more. I've got to give more. I've got to do whatever it is more. Fill the blank. But the more you understand the verdict, the love that God has declared over us, the more that says, I want to live my life in such a way that makes much of Jesus. Using the gifts that I've been given as a wise steward, as I work in his field, because I want to please the master, 
and others might not like that, and others might come down against me and might have bad negative vibes and feelings and, you know, verdicts over me. But even as, and again, look, I've been doing this for 26 years. I have had 26 years of people giving me bad verdicts, right? So this is not about me, but the point of the matter is that at the end of the day, at some point, if all we live for is the praise of other people, man, we just get shipwrecked. There's another way to live that lives for the glory of God, like Peter said, and in his glory. It's like what C.S. Lewis describes, the weight of glory, the weight of glory, one day, the true embodiment of that glory is God looking at you as his son, beloved son and daughter, saying, well done. So proud of you, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. And that, that verdict of what God offers through Jesus, if you truly live into that, will rewire, rewire, reorient the sum total of your life. And it'll cause you to see people differently, not as objects to be manipulated in order to advance your way so that you can feed your ego, or not live in this endless like cycle of condescension. I'm such a horrible human being. I'm the worst human being on the planet. Yeah, you probably are, but that's because you don't get the second part. The second part is that even though you are a scoundrel, you're so loved. Let's talk with a friend. I have the worship going up right now. No, we're good. Come on up. Stop knocking this. Just kidding. Um, make it right down. Nobody can come down. But I want you to think about this. I had a conversation with a friend of mine this past week who some gnarly stuff got revealed about his life. I'm going to be super ambiguous and vague. And just in the course of the dialogue with him, I just said, look, dude, he goes, I, I feel so ashamed to receive grace. And I said, you sh- not that you should feel deep shame that what controls you, but you should understand that you've done some stupid things so bad that has caused so much damage in your life. And those whom you love, yeah, dude, it's like straight up, like you've, you've messed up bad, really bad. And you, you need to feel the gravity of that. But at the end of the day, not only do you have a God that deeply loves you, you also have a handful of people, of which I'm one of them. I'm standing here right now. If I hated you, I wouldn't be here talking with you. I wouldn't be here hugging you. Like, I, I love you. You're, you. You did stupid things, straight up. But I love you, man. And yeah, you're going to be paying for this for years to come. But I love you, dude. Like, God, God loves you. He's, he's for you. And he's, he was this whole countenance was being changed. I said, this is not based upon your performance or what you can do. Because we've already shown, like your actions have shown your performance is horrible. This is bad. This is straight up bad. Like you don't have it in you to perform good. And what the best that you did is like really bad. But you can let God rewire this and make you a different person and you're going to be changed. And your relationships are going to be changed. In your relationships with other people, how you view them and see them and your criticalness that you have and harbor towards them is going to be utterly appended and replaced with love. It's the difference between the gospel that changes us and our effort to just try to perform and work and fear man and elevate other people and create divisiveness and our little tribalistic ways and cannibalistic actions. So the gospel, here's the cool thing about this, and I'm done. How about we all stand? Sorry, I went a little bit over. Did I go over? I went over. So we'll wrap this up. If you need to leave, you can leave. But um, as I close, my thought is this. Jesus says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, um, you'll be saved. You know, so, so the question is, like, like how, do we, how do we change? That's a big question, but it begins. It begins with the simple realization that Jesus is king. Pornography should not be king. It makes a horrible master. Money, debt should not be king. It makes a horrible master. Alcohol should not be king. It makes a horrible master. Jesus is king. He makes an amazing master. He's a master that gives everything for you so that you can be changed. To the degree that you get that and let that really change you, you'll be a different person. So Jesus, thank you right now for your great love. And as we respond to you, as we go to the table, as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, God, may we be reminded that
that you bore our shame, our sickness, our death on the cross in order to rescue us and save us. Those constructs that we create of elevating other people over other things and celebrityism and all, all this stuff, Lord, it's just passing, fading. It's all software that's, that's connected to this present age, which is passing. So Jesus, we invite you to breathe new life into our bones, into our hearts, into our lungs, so that we would live differently. So as we go to the table, as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, let's have some people up at the front here to serve you. We have some other areas in the back. We'll also have some people up in the front who would love to pray with you if there's anything at all right now in your life. Maybe addictions that need to be broken, elements in your life where you're just feeling the weight of brokenness or sin, whether it be from your own doing or others doing to you. We would love to pray for you because that's what this is about. It's about Jesus setting people free and carrying burdens and bringing life. So let's respond We'll sing and we'll wrap it up. You can wake your way to the front if you'd like to be prayed for, receive communion.